there are more employees with more choice now and more flexibility than there was 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, for sure. And the disappearance of pensions in most corporations have taken away what would have kept people in place 10, 15 years ago. That's not there anymore. And so you're much more you know, a CEO of your own career than you were in the past. There's a revolution taking place right now. Talent and intelligence are equally distributed throughout the world, but opportunity is not. The talent economy, the idea that at the center of work is the talent, is the individual. Companies today face a global war for talent, and high-skilled talent is demanding flexibility around the way they work and the way they live. This podcast brings together thought leaders, staffing experts, and top freelancers to talk about the evolving nature of work and how companies can navigate these changes to remain competitive, drive innovation, and ensure success. Welcome to the Talent Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Estes. My guest today is Carrie Brown, the Vice President of Workforce Adoption at SAP. She focuses on how jobs are changing in the workplace, including where we work, how we work, and who we work with. All of it is changing at a faster pace than ever. Hi, my name is Carrie Brown. I am the Vice President of Workforce Adoption with SAP. I have been a customer of SAP for 12 years. I've been at SAP for 15. And my focus has always been during that time on people. Really, my litmus test is looking at how people's jobs change, which is what I do with our customers every day. Well, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you for, for taking the time. You've got a bunch of insights and there's nothing more exciting than than trying to understand what is going on with work and how people should think about it, whether they're doing change management at a company or they're an employee trying to figure out what to do. Before we get into the work that you're doing at SAP, I, I want to go back. I always like to understand what people did before they got in their current job. So you were going to run the Olympics. <laughs> Tell me a little <laughs> bit about where you started and, and you kind of had a, an interesting journey to where you are today. So just take me back a little bit. In university, I actually studied sports marketing. So I began by looking at business and marketing and realized I wasn't at the time, just like the character Michael J. Fox was playing, carrying a briefcase. And I decided to do sports marketing. And so I did a combination of a business and phys ed degree. And my goal and thought I would grow up would be to run the Olympics or be a part of that. And I came out of school and worked for a sports governing body. And then that first year that I was working, I met up with a president of a company who knew I was in marketing. And a few months later said, hey, you should come consider trying to work for our company. And that changed the trajectory of my life. And I ended up working for a company in building materials who was an Australian multinational who actually took me from doing that role to being involved in a cross-business team focused on quality and improvement and Kaizen and Deming and ISO, if anybody speaks those words. And that company then implemented SAP and asked me to be in charge of the change management, which was all of the people side related to that implementation. And I have continued to be connected with the technology or transformation side of things with relation to SAP or other technologies ever since. Let's talk about change management. You talk about the changing workplace, but but very specifically where we work, how we work, and and who we work with. As you start to think of that space and, and you think of the word change management, tell me a little of the things that you've learned and the hardest parts of change management when it comes to humans and our jobs and the way we work. I would say that the world's natural change or imposed change we've gone through in the last Probably, you know, really five years, the ability to work remotely in many, many jobs 
has created opportunities for either the individual to make that choice or for a corporation to make that choice for them. When you think about the different influences and why you can choose what that, that can look like, do you have a family? Don't you have a family? Do you live close to work? Don't you live close to work? Do you need to commute? Is commuting expensive? Can you recruit from different places by having people who are nowhere near where the, the actual work activity is taking place? And the influx of technology where how do you use things like we're using right now to communicate or variations thereof? You know, I came across a company two years ago now where their entire business runs on flat. And none of them are in the same city and they meet maybe once a year, but they all function in a completely remote capacity. So I think the choices and the opportunities for how we work have shifted that give flexibility either from a satisfaction standpoint, a recruitment standpoint, which are more so around, honestly, the, the power to the people and the power to the employee. But then there's also the choices for the corporation to say, how can I get better talent by recruiting from different places? Potentially, how can I change cost models? But also, how can I look at customer care by having people who might be in the same time zone and so on? So lots of different choices. To your question about change management, for the employer, there's kind of graduations that you go through when you're 10 employees to 50 to 100 to 500 to a couple of thousand to tens of thousands where FaceTime is either expected or needed or, or usual or comfortable. And then there's a certain scale where it's not viable no matter what you would do. You know, 50,000 people in a company don't typically live in the same city and see each other. Five or 10 or 15 or 20 or even 500 might. So some of the rules around how work gets done and the cultural norms of seeing people and understanding or believing that if they're, if I can see them, they're working. If I can't see them, they're not. So there's some rules in terms of engagement. And then I think for the employee, some of the challenges around the change are really very personal. Do you function well in the rhythm of a business? What kind of accountability do you put on yourself or what kind of accountability do you put on others or, or take from others to be as efficient and effective as you can be? Are you an introvert or an extrovert? You know, what kind of connections do you need? And I think, so I think the changes from a business standpoint around managing change for challenging are the trust and the accountability side of things. And then that accountability side really goes to the individual as well as to how do I make sure that I'm getting done what I need to get done and navigating through what personally might be a different set of circumstances around who you work with and how you see people. A lot of that resonates with me. I, I went from 20 years in big tech and a lot of technology, but the, the work environment was very traditional. Lots of meetings, a lot of nine to five, you commuted there, remote work wasn't really embraced uh, in any way to working now for a fully distributed team. I've been in what I would consider very pure, very different, but very pure environments. You work at a multinational company and no, everyone is not at the headquarters, right? There's people all around the world. You're sending emails around the world. You're, you know, maybe doing Teams calls or, or Zoom calls and, and maybe there's, you know, some slack in, in the environment. How do you tell those multinational companies, and I'm sure SAP has this challenge, to the manager that's just local? Let's say there's a manager that has 100 people and they're grappling with how to really get more done and how to embrace remote. Maybe they've heard about it. Maybe they want to try, but their entire career, they've been working in a model. And by the way, they're getting paid and bonused for that model. They don't feel that need for change yet. In, in a larger scale, the company needs them to adopt some sort of transformation. So how do you deal with the middle managers that are trying to solve locally? I think that's not a new challenge. I think it's increasingly an opportunity, but I don't think it's a new challenge. Like 
if you think about people who work for that, that sample manager, in those 100 people, you're going to have people who are morning people and who are not morning people. So one of the first ranges of flexibility you look at work is when do you start and finish? I worked at Coca-Cola Enterprises before working at SAP, and we had you know, a pretty consistent rhythm of in by eight and leaving by six. On different days, you might come and go at different times, but that was sort of the unspoken expectation. There were some people who got in at 6 or 7 a.m. who might have left at 4 or 5 to avoid rush hour or to support their kids getting out of school or whatever that might be. So at its most infant or, or smallest steps, if you will, baby steps around it, is looking at the difference between people and how they function. I think when you look at that, that sample we're talking about, the advice I give set managers understanding what is it that people do and where is it that seeing each other and collaborating face-to-face or otherwise adds value and what are the activities that each of the people on that team are responsible for and how do you know that they're getting their job done? And if people have a job that's super measurable, then honestly, when and how and where they do it kind of doesn't matter. Whatever kind of widget it is that they're creating, whether it's reports or orders or papers or whatever the activity might be, if you know that their typical cadence of work is to complete X amount of those in Y amount of time, then it doesn't really matter if that time is done at the start of the day, at the end of the day, in pieces and parts of the day, because you know the work's getting done. If you look then at collaboration with the team, where is it that connecting adds value and meaning and efficiency to the team? So does that mean that of those 100 people, Some of them need to be accessible to each other for some periods of the day or the week. Or do you say, you know what, we're all going to be together on one day of the week and the other four days you're flexible. So to me, I think what's important is looking at how do you measure the work and also then how do you look at where and how that work needs to be done. The challenge back to measuring the work is if people have something that's a bit more nuanced. And so again, what is the value that they add? What is the role that they play and how do you confirm that they're adding value and making a difference. And in fact, what I would say is asking that employee, how can they demonstrate that? And not in a way that you're putting them on the spot and saying, I don't believe you add value, but saying, I want to give you as much flexibility as I can. How can I know that that happens? So that they know that you're getting your work done so that there's the opportunity for the flexibility and the agility that that employee might want. What's interesting, honestly, though, is some people don't want that. We have 100,000 employees. Many of us work remotely. And that's completely acceptable. But depending on our jobs, there's an expectation to be together on certain days of the week or for certain meetings. But when I look at the team at large, I have colleagues who prefer to come to the office because they don't have a quiet space at home to work. Or they like, from a rhythm standpoint, to be able to focus their time in the workplace rather than doing that at home. And so some of that comes down to also personal choice. I had that conversation this morning with my wife. And so one of the things we're going to do is I'm going to do a podcast where I actually interview my wife who continues to work at uh, Microsoft in the cloud division. And she really enjoys going to work to where she gets work done, Mm -hmm. thrives in the structure and in the rhythm like you were talking about. Whereas I have found that I am much more introverted than I thought. The world isn't binary. It's not everybody work from home or everybody go to an office. The idea of flexibility is the conversation. And I totally agree with you. What's interesting though on that, like, well, I, I work from home. I've been at SCP 15 years, almost 16. I've never had an office. I am an off the charts extrovert. If you do all the tests, I'm in the 95th percentile. 
I travel a lot. So for me, when I'm not traveling, I work from home and it allows me to have much more flexibility around things that are getting delivered at my home or when I need to get work done, I can have that fluidity in my time versus if I was needing to go to office, I would need to get up, dress up in a way that is corporately appropriate, climb in a car during what is probably rush hour and go to an office. And because my job is not specifically focused on the geographical region I live in, I would sit in an office. I'm actually in the SAP office right now and I don't come that often. I'm in a room right now because I'm in a planning meeting for the day, but I would not typically come here. And so I would come here and sit on the phone like I am with you now, which I could just as easily be doing from my home. So I actually make the choice not to go to the office while I really like people because I see people in other places and I can be more efficient by getting up and get, do, going and doing most of my work dressed in athleisure and, you know, using a phone. Yeah, I just want to be clear with everyone. I am in a, a business suit uh, here at home doing this interview. So I, I, <laughs> I believe you. Yes. When I get to talk to a vice president at a big company, I, I dress <laughs> for the part. Um, so I just wanted you to know that. Did you think about the the evolution of the where, how, and who of, of work? What is a commonality that you, you hear from all companies right now as they think about talent? So some absolute commonalities are the changes in who the talent is across every industry. So as you say, I work across all industries and geographies in North America, and many of those companies are global. The volume of people in the the last leftover boomers and Gen X are nearing the ends of their careers. So there is a war on talent, certainly at that end of the spectrum in terms of are they staying, aren't they staying? How do people spend the last one, three, five, ten 10 years of their career? There's been quite a bit of focus. I'd say the other commonality in looking at people who are spending their first one, three, five, ten 10 years of their careers. So there's a big commonality at looking at how to build talent and grow talent and capture talent across many industries. Some commonalities based on flexibility, and we, as we talked about the workplace and the workspace, there are certain industries people want to work in when they're entering the workforce. Certain industries folks are not leaning towards as quickly. And I realize, like, as you think about the workforce at large, I'm talking not as much so about hourly workers, but even for hourly workers, that was interesting. I was listening to NPR yesterday and listening to how Lockheed Martin and Caterpillar and others are actually paying for hourly workforce. They're paying for their relocation as well as a signing bonus in the you know $1,000 to $2,000 range, which is something typically you would never have seen for those kinds of jobs. So the war on talent is increasing. And I would say the trends around that are what do you do with the established talent at the end of their careers who are thinking about where they want to go and then the larger population at the start of their careers and I would say what's interesting about both of those groups you put them together is they have a ton of choice, whether it is at the start of your career where everything's a possibility because you're not locked into things or where you're nearing the end of your career and many things are a possibility because you have more flexibility than you did five or 10 years earlier in your career or in your family scenario. You said something that's really powerful and I think people, as they look at diversity, sometimes forget, which is the age diversity that's in the workforce now. And what I've witnessed is that the idea that you need control of your career and you need to be able to have flexibility is input. Maybe you don't want it. And I think there's this really interesting thing about 
companies are going to do their best to provide opportunity for you and reskilling for you. But at the end of the day, they have responsibilities to shareholders and, and to the business. And you're going to have to take a lot more control of your career. And I think there's this friction of people who are starting to understand that and saying, hey, wait, that's a lot of work. <laughs> I may not have the skill set. I don't know what it means to take control of my career. What are you seeing that organizations do as they help reskill people in place? Talent now has a choice and it's those people that are leaning in and being proactive. I still think there's a cohort of people across all age ranges that are saying, oh, I'm going to go and the company will take care of me. I think you're absolutely right. So right now we're looking at five or six generations in the workforce, depending on your industry, but many. And historically, that guidance or control has been in the position of the corporation versus of the person. I think that's more familiar to those entering the workforce because they haven't had necessarily five or 10 or 15 years of experiencing one way of being. Their experience is much more like when you're in the networking and finding and seeking mode than in the executing mode. I do think it's really intimidating for a lot of people to say, where do I want to go? Like I remember probably about seven or eight years ago now I had a, a fellow, like a, an employee come and do a fellowship with me for six months. And, you know, he said, I'm going to do A, B, C, D, E. And here's how I'm going to go from where I am to being a vice president. This is the path I'm going to take. And I said, wow, that's really impressive because I've never had that kind of clarity for myself. I've looked at what's in front of me and made the best choices I thought I could make at the time. One could argue which way is the better path. I don't know. There's, there's merits and, and benefits to both. I think the challenge for employees is you don't know what you don't know. How can the corporation give you visibility into what those possibilities might be? The average tenure of the employee is now sitting at more like 2.8 years than historically used to be in the 7 to 11 range. So people are looking more, for sure. You know, individuals are, are turning over more in terms of the roles that they're picking. What I'm seeing happen in corporations is a bigger focus on learning and a bigger focus on experience. So if you think for the last 20 years or so, we had people who were pretty much in place for longer periods of time. So the burden on either the individual or on the corporation to learn new things happened less often and in less volume. The speed and the pace of that has gone up. And so the requirement on the corporation to provide more learning opportunities is growing either based on change in talent where they didn't want it to happen, but they need to respond, or B, in terms of the pace of business change and business models is changing, so every employee needs that kind of learning. And I would say around experience, too, is the what might that look like? How do I grow and learn and have the opportunity to move around a business? The behavior of somebody who is more of a contract gig-type worker, that's starting to be turned, you know, flip that around and do it inside a corporation where you can reinvent yourself within an organization. And what I'm seeing is that the transparency of corporations around what is available is much higher. So what jobs are out there, what kinds of jobs are out there, and starting to shift even to either the contract type scenario or potentially looking at job sharing or part-time work as you think about what the needs might be of those different generations at different phases of their career. When you look across the generations and you look at formal higher education, what changes do you see going on between the various generations? It's shifting. And your point of it being across different generations, I think is essential. 
historically, the boomer generation didn't all go to college. Gen Xers did more. Boomers made sure their kids went to college, which to me also is part of what led to the sort of supply-demand curve challenge and competition of the college has been for the last many years. So the competitiveness and the high cost of college have come with the mass demand for a college that has been existing as the boomers have been putting their kids through school. Gen X, which by the way, I'm in there with you, there aren't that many of us and we didn't have as many kids. And I'm curious to see, I haven't looked at the actual numbers, but just based on knowing the numbers of the workforce itself, when I think about what that's going to do to education, there aren't. So the supply demand curve is about to shift. The number of students available to be going to school is going down. And along with that, the kinds of jobs that are getting created that don't necessarily rely on formal education are also materializing. So the growth of influencers and the fact that somebody can be a media specialist and have two, 2 million followers and they're 17, they don't need to go and take a degree for four years to figure out what to do with that. They can, but they don't need to. Same with robotics, same with other types of jobs where you can learn skills outside of that. And when you start to factor in how to AI or machine learning or robotics or other things come into jobs, I think what's interesting is considering what are the unique qualities we bring to work. So the creativity, the problem solving, the grit, et cetera. Back to your question around education. I think education also is being challenged because we have to learn so fast and we have to learn so much that historically the path of your life was education career, continued advancement in the same skill set area that you were in, and then retirement. Really what it is now is education, which teaches you how to learn. By no means is it teaching you all the things you need to learn. And then you have to continually learn, unlearn, and relearn throughout your career on the way to the end of your career. And you're ending up looking at probably three to five careers in your workspace versus one or two careers, or maybe three, that's historically where we've been. So the Lifelong learner is definitely there just from a survival standpoint, but I would say for higher education, the lifelong degree is also becoming a much bigger reality. And you see MOOCs coming out of so many more colleges, whether that's for degree or not for degree purposes, but the ability to continue to learn and adapt is much more necessary for everyone to stay current and to stay vital. Yeah, I was having a conversation with Greta Corporal over at Oxford, and, and we were talking about a quote that came out of the World Economic Forum of your degree is only valuable for five years. And she made the same point that some people are missing that the idea of structured formal education is to teach you how to learn. One of the things that I've seen in the freelancer community as I've started working and understanding it more is that freelancers feel this very acutely, that part of freelancing is the responsibility to stay current and continue to learn. And they they can't atrophy because they have to make sure that they're on the cutting edge of whatever their expertise or, or value that they're providing is. And so I've had lots of freelancers come and say, well, yes, I chose this path because I have immediate control over what I get to learn. How do you think organizations are changing in the way they think of their traditional contingent programs as all of these shifts are going on? I'm certainly observing that the contingent worker, or if you will, what was staff AUG and would be a, an ability to expand the hours of work that could be generated in a particular area, the kinds of people who are doing those jobs is changing. So historically, that was in jobs that might not have been as senior or as 
technical in orientation, but rather based on seasonal demand or situational demand. What I'm seeing is that the contingent worker or the gig worker is actually now becoming much more senior and much more technical. If I look in Canada, you know, there's always been a layer of people who've been quite senior in their professional careers who fill in for the fact that women in Canada get a year off post-pregnancy for taking care of their kids. So there's a whole layer of people who get a year off and it's been a whole layer of people who've had careers where they play that role. If I look in the States, what I'm seeing is the growth in, in both nations, frankly, but in all organizations, there are not as many people who have the years of experience. So in oil and gas now, for example, there are people at very senior levels who are that contingent worker who, instead of being a vice president level or something thereof at one particular organization, are actually becoming advisors across a number of businesses in that industry because there aren't a lot of people with that wisdom. And that's really, I think, if you look at the number of people in the workplace who were in the boomer category, you know, who are in that big bubble of work, followed by Gen X, which is smaller, followed by the next big bubble of millennials, you're seeing that gap where there's just not as not much talent or knowledge in particular areas. So the gig economy scenario is expanding to include people who would not have otherwise necessarily been seen as freelancers. And that staff aug, which was typically done at a more junior or all hands on deck kind of role, is actually bringing in much more senior experience wisdom. Yeah, it's timely because yesterday I had someone, uh, a senior HR leader in oil and gas, reach out and and want to learn more about whether it's fractional executives or just that idea that that you were talking about that more senior people like how do I get access to them because they exist, you know, and, and I think in a lot of ways people are starting to embrace the consulting or or freelance lifestyle. You wrote five future-proofing practices. What led you to to write that? And tell me a little bit about the five. I'm curious by nature and a bit of a sociological observer. So a lot of my practices or observations around the future work come from working with customers and, and listening to their questions. And it's interesting. I got, I had the opportunity recently to about a year ago to listen to a keynote who was talking about the difference between what do you have to do and what do you get to do? And the key question of the day was, you know, what is it you love most about your job? When asked, and it's still true for me, one of the things that's best about my job is when people are buying SAP, they're typically investing a significant sum for their organization. And they put the smartest people they have on that task. And they ask the hardest questions because they're making really big decisions for their organization. And I get to play in that, which is fun and great brain candy and a challenge. When I look at my role focused around the future of work and workforce adoption and really how do people thrive in their jobs, the questions I get are regularly, well, what's, how's that going to change? What's going to be different if, you know, as my organization change, as my leadership changes, as new technologies or intelligent technologies come in, how do jobs change? And that litmus test of how do people's jobs change continues to hold true. And Carrie Williams, who used to work at SAP and prior to that wrote the book, The 2020 Workforce, she and I had conversations over the years. And then recently, I think, and, and looked ahead and said, where, where did her book take to? Because we're now at 2020. Many of those things she imagined 10 years ago are super true. If I look ahead at 2030, what do I see being different? And how do I answer those questions and give as much guidance from what I do know and, and, on, and honestly give as much guidance from what I don't know yet? for corporations as they consider how to successfully 
execute their work and service the needs of their customers by having engaged employees who are doing great work. And so those themes, I think, uh, and some of them we've talked about today, you know, one, the talent, talent's going to hold the power. If you look at the volume of choice that we all have now, while that can be daunting, there are more employees with more choice now and more flexibility than there was 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, for sure. And the disappearance of pensions in most corporations have taken away what would have kept people in place 10, 15 years ago. That's not there anymore. And so you're much more you know, a CEO of your own career than you were in the past. We talked about higher education. You know, I think that really is a big reflection of the supply-demand curve, as well as the influx of intelligent enterprise. And then what do you need to, what skills do you bring? And those skills of, those human skills are things that often you learn while you're in college because you're just maturing as a human being. But you look at companies like VaynerMedia who have removed the need for either years of experience or education from their job postings because they recognize the kind of talent that they need doesn't necessarily need a degree to work for them. If you don't know who they are, they did three of the ads for the Super Bowl this year. So they're doing pretty well with the people that they're bringing in. A lot of it's proof of work. A lot of people are working more transparently and you can see their work. The third one I looked at was really about apps, about Gen X. There's a blind spot, I think, in corporations. And honestly, this aha came to me really by listening to coworkers and friends and watching around me that the amount of talent demand, particularly in the industry that we're in, so whether you're looking across Microsoft, uh, SAP, and, and others in our space, as well as the change from where people would say five to seven years ago of, you know, and my kids got X amount of time left in high school or Y amount of time left in college. And then myself or my spouse, we, one of us might retire, we could move, we have flexibility. And so that choice has really changed. And corporations have continued to service that or that population the same way they did five and 10 years ago, while they have made lots of different choices around how to bring in new talent. I think that what I'm observing, and we've actually just launched a program focused on established talent, so that we do look at where people are going to be and want to be in their last, you know, one, three, seven, ten years of their career, and what kinds of programs like rotations across the business or part-time shared work, et cetera, what are those things that also respond to the fact that boomers at large are retiring but not leaving the workforce fully? And as we know, the cost of bringing in an employee is really high. The cost of bringing in a customer is really high. So replacing them, you know, you'd rather look at how they could reinvent themselves with you than lose them and start all over again. So that really came out of just observing what I'm seeing in the world around me. The last couple are really, again, looking at choice. We talked about having all of that choice and being the CEO of your own career. There's so much more available to all of us. There is the possibility in more corporations like what you talked about at Microsoft to go explore and invent your own new career. I know that at some of the FANG companies, so the Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google spaces, they're looking at bringing in talent and saying, hey, talent, we want you. Now, spend the first three months telling us exactly what you could and should be doing for us. Uh, Lululemon, for years, they do a lot around certainly your man- the, the Lululemon Manifesto and how to live. They will ask you, where do you want to be in five years? Is there a job in this company that you want to have that you don't have now or that we don't have now and invent it? And so that, that trend started a while ago and is increasing with all of the transparency and all of the fluidity of jobs. 
And the last one is, is that the people are writing their own job descriptions. It is 10 years since I came across that phenomenon at Lulu. And what I was amazed by and impressed by at their five-year goal, your five-year goal did not need to be something within that corporation. It was really accepting and embracing that the happier you can be while you're with us, the better you will be for us, even if in five years where you wish to be isn't with us. That sentiment is, is powerful. It's really an interesting thing when you give people the power and control how they respond to that and, and how they maybe don't want it. <laughs> you know, and some people are like, hey, I just want to do my job and tell me what to do versus you're giving me all this with empowerment comes responsibility. Uh, and that responsibility can be heady to some people. This is my favorite part of the show. I'm going to ask you five rapid fire questions. What is one thing about you that's not on your LinkedIn profile? I love traveling. If you could trade lives with anyone for a day, who would it be and why? A talk show host, whether it's Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel, Stephen Colbert, Ellen DeGeneres, the opportunity to interview interesting people is great brain candy and there's always lots to learn. So all of them. Or you could just start a podcast. <laughs> That's one thing too. If you were stranded on a tropical island, what two things would you want with you? So I would want some way to hunt for food and I would want some way to communicate. So I'm assuming I would take my phone, but that would allow me to get off of that island and um, something to hunt for food. There you go. What book or movie has inspired you most over the past year? Free Solo is the movie that's inspired me the most. And what inspired me about it was his dedication and purism at clearly and simply understand his purpose and his goals and his outcomes and the transparency with which he embraced his friends and his family in a very singular manner to do something that was daring and scary. Thank you so much for joining me. If somebody wants to get in touch with you or learn more about the great work you're doing at SAP, what's the best way to reach out? They can find me on LinkedIn or alternately, um, they can email me at Carrie, K-E-R-Y dot Brown at SAP.com. Sounds great. Thank you so much, Carrie. I'm your host, Paul Estes. Thank you for listening to the Talent Economy Podcast. Learn more about the future of work and the transformation of the staffing industry from those leading the conversation at staffing.com, where you can hear from experts, sign up for our weekly newsletter, and get access to the best industry research on the future of staffing. If you've enjoyed the conversation, we'd appreciate you rating us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, or just tell a friend about the show. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of The Talent Economy.